Um, Jordan is a part of a nonprofit that he started called the Naomi Project, and I'm not going to steal his thunder, but um, we met, I think I met Sarah at a coffee shop, and uh, we've just had such good engagement. They've been a part of our gospel community, and I started hearing what he did a couple months back, and I just, as soon as he started sharing, I'm like, man, I want everybody to know the stories that he has uh, encountered as he's been an advocate for those that have been exploited. Um, and so if you could, let's welcome Jordan to share uh, about Jesus and immigration. There you go. Oh, I'm not turned on. <laughs> All right. Um, I'd like to start off by reading our passage for the day. It's from John 8. You can follow along with me. It's a familiar story. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin throw the first stone. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Can you hide your brokenness? The woman in our story today could not. She finds herself targeted and put on trial by a crowd ready and armed to make an example of her. The crowd goes directly to Jesus Uh, to make him responsible for what was about to unfold. But Jesus does not react to the crowd. He doesn't cower or cave in, nor does he try to shame or intimidate or argue with the crowd. Uh, Imagine for a moment that you are in that crowd, filled with this violent toxic energy. You have defenses against someone who tries to control you or tries to argue with you, but this person is just standing there and now he's getting down on the ground and writing something. What is he writing? And as the crowd moves with Jesus and is distracted from their initial goal, you can almost feel the, the toxic energy begin to dissipate. 
is only then that Jesus speaks. And again, doesn't use shame or logic, uh, but instead offers an invitation. Let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. The defense of the crowd crumbles with the oldest ones leaving first. As we think about our own experience, uh, um, we know that you know whether or not we can hide our brokenness and whether or not we will face punishment for our brokenness has to do with power. It has to do with status. It has to do with race. In this particular story, it has to do with gender. We all know it takes two to tango. But because of women's inferior status within the society, no one seemed to have a problem that uh, this woman would be punished and be seen as somehow more morally culpable, more responsible for, for what had happened than her male uh, counterpart. And as we think about our immigration system, guilt lies with multiple parties. There are violations of labor laws, of internationally recognized human rights, land grabs, and broken treaties. But the people prioritized for punishment are those whose situation was so de desperate they entered the country without a visa. Or perhaps they initially had a visa when they came into our country, but then overstayed because they're afraid of what would happen if they went back home. The strategy that we see uh, unfolding in our culture to justify righteous indignation towards these vulnerable people involves downplaying or conveniently forgetting episodes in U.S. history which might create some ground on which these vulnerable people could stake a moral claim that perhaps the U.S., as the U.S., we owe these people something more than a one-way ticket back to their own country. And to do that, we need to think um, historically, like, you know, how did we, how did we get here? Uh, and ask some basic questions like, how did we end up with our borders being where they are in the first place? That's actually an uncomfortable question. And involves some of these episodes that, of our history that we'd rather for, forget. Uh, similarly, uh, another question would be, you know, why is it that people come to the U.S. to seek opportunity and security? Why can't, why can't these people find that in their own country? So to explore this question, I'd like us to check out a trailer for a documentary about the country of Guatemala. Uh, and it's particularly relevant because here in the US, there are a lot of people who are undocumented who are from Guatemala. Um, and before the film goes into the good work, it, it, it does some really helpful uh, preparing of the context and, and looking at uh, some of Guatemala's recent history in which the US had a role. So, 
uh, let's check this, that out. On the morning of June 18, 1954, the CIA dropped leaflets in Guatemala City demanding the resignation of the president. This action destabilized the region and became the catalyst for war. Un día vinieron los soldados y, y tomaron la vida de mi de mi padre y de mi tío. Un día nuestra madre se ausentó, nunca regresó por nosotros. Entre 10 años cuando yo me fui a las calles. An entire generation of Guatemalan children lost their families. People fleeing violence created some of the largest slum communities in Latin America. Gangs are looking for places with a lot of children. And there is one place with a lot of children. The lack of security and the lack of justice that you see today is a direct result of the conflict. More people are dying now than the people who were dying during the Civil War. Maybe just a, another second or two. It says, I'll complete it. It says, um, uh, there's still a war. Uh, there's still a war happening. Um, so was anyone uh, familiar with this episode of the U.S.'s engagement with Guatemala? Anyone other than my wife? Uh, uh, so I uh, had the, the opportunity to learn about this in a Latin American history class with my friend Dan Miller when I was in college, and that's how I first learned about this. Um, but um, most of us don't, and it's, you know, it's helpful to ask ourselves, well, why? And, and just to give a little bit more, that was really brief. So... Um, Again, Guatemala passes this Land Reform Act in 1954 that allows the government to buy up land that isn't being used for the price that landowners say it's worth on their tax return uh, in order to redistribute that land to uh, landless peasants. Uh, sounds a lot like uh, Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, uh, but um, because the largest landowner in the U.S. or in Guatemala at the time was the United Fruit Company, uh, and because they were extremely well connected, so they had someone on their board whose brother was the head of the CIA. Uh, um, they cried, "Oh, this is communism!" And because it was, you know, in the context of the the Cold War, uh, and because it was economically, you know, within the U.S.'s interest, this this unfolded. And um, it's something that um, I think we need to 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 think about, you know, particularly in light of. Uh, Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, uh, which uh, reads, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Um, this story largely hasn't been told. Um, a lot of us are, are in, in a position um, very different than some of the people who are directly impacted by that. And we have the opportunity to, to raise these questions. And what I, what I like about that verse from Proverbs, it says, uh, uh, speak up and judge fairly, 
speak up and judge fairly. So think for yourself. What, what, does the, what might the U.S. owe Guatemala for being uh, involved in this way in its unfolding development? And, you know, it wasn't just that one episode, but the U.S. trained uh, Guatemalan uh, military members um, here in the U.S. And, and in Guatemala and, and have been found guilty of human rights abuses. Um, so the, those are, those are, are uh, questions I think uh, we, should, we should explore further. And to help us explore that a little further, I'd like to invite my friend Oscar up here, who's from Guatemala, uh, to help us understand uh, the experience of people uh, uh, coming from that context a little better. So Oscar, could you come up? Oscar. Is this, this on? Hi everyone, um, my name is Oscar, uh, I'm glad I'm worried. Uh, my first time to come over here. Um, I speak a little bit English but I need a little bit of practice more so I'm glad to, I want to be Jordan translate me. ¿Quieres? Yeah. Pero tú sí puedes. Um, pero, ¿por qué no nos cuentas un poco de tu experiencia de vivir en Guatemala, de, de crecer ahí? Um, bueno, mi, mi historia en Guatemala es, es un poco diferente de lo que vimos en la película ahora. So, my story uh, in Guatemala is a little, happened a little bit different time than, than the section of history that we, we saw in the film. Uh, se ha mejorado un poquito uh, de todo lo que, lo que ha pasado uh, anteriormente porque uh, han sido muchas uh, historias y pues mi historia es más un poquito diferente porque ya se va acercando la educación y también uh, han llegado carreteras y por uh, donde yo vivo porque vivo en, en la montaña como dicen um, and so, uh, since uh, the Civil War, the area in which I lived has been able to recover somewhat economically and, and uh, build some highways. I live in a, in a, a remote mountainous region. Podría ser que somos un poquito atendible por el gobierno y pues no tenemos mucho acceso a... Uh, como para ir a vender tan luego o para que nos lleguen a comprar los productos que, que sacamos, uh, digamos maíz, frijol y todo eso. Um, so where we are is uh, a bit uh, neglected by the government and it's uh, difficult for us to uh, obtain the, the basics of what we need to live uh, and find opportunities to, to buy that. Uh, no tenemos agua potable de desde ahora, yo creo, porque hace mucho que salí allá. Y la luz pero pero cuenta, cuenta un poco de tu propia experiencia. Okay, <laughs> de, um, de cómo viviste y cuándo tuviste que trabajar. Uh, sí, estuvimos. Uh, mi papá nos, uh, nos enseñó a trabajar desde de muy pequeño. So, my dad taught me to work from the time I was very little. Uh, 
uh, la cual ellos también uh, han vivido lo mismo, entonces ellos nos enseñan lo mismo. So he, he taught us what he, what he knew uh, in order to, to get by. Uh, lo más que recuerdo, uh, a los cinco años yo creo que ya él me lleva a trabajar con él. So at, at age five, I, I would go to work with my dad. And all of my siblings in my family, we all had this, that same experience. So we'd always have to go out and uh, find firewood because we didn't have uh, electricity. Uh, and so that was always our, one of our jobs was to go out and, and find firework so we could cook and heat the house. So when, when school became available where I was, I was able to go to school for a few years uh, after I turned uh, 10, um, uh, but uh, after a few years, then I had to go back to, to, to work. Uh, so at age 18, I went to go find a, a job at a business to support my family. And so that was pretty difficult for me because I, I speak an indigenous language and uh, Spanish is a second language. Entonces, ha sido un poquito difícil mi vida, entonces, uh, mi problema, nuestro problema ahí es, económicamente, es, uh, es bastante diferente, es bastante difícil. So, it's just very, very difficult to get by economically there. Uh, entonces, la decisión tomé, fui a trabajar y trabajé como dos años creo, o tres años en, en esa empresa, regresé nuevamente, en la cual tomé la decisión de, de ver cómo para poder ayudar a mi familia y que no sufren más uh, económicamente. And so after working for that business for two or three years, I thought more about what I needed to do so that my uh, family would no longer suffer uh, economically. Y de ahí pues tomé la decisión y pues so I'm a, I'm a Christian and I attend an evangelical church and so I, I prayed to God that God would make a way possible for me to uh, support my family and, and by, by coming to the U.S. Entonces llegué aquí en la cual pude ayudar mucho, mucho más a mi familia porque también llegué aquí ilegalmente. Uh, and so I, I came here, uh, albeit uh, illegally, uh, to, to uh, support my family and, and try to uh, help my family uh, 
prosper. So because of my decision to come here, I was able to uh, support uh, my two brothers, or sorry, my, my, my younger brother and sister to come here as well, when they've been able to study, uh, and, and that's been a, a huge blessing for my family. So that there's a lot to tell, but that's um, all I would like to share for for now. And maybe we could have a time of questions a little a little bit later, and and he could respond to to questions. Gracias. That was good. So, uh, thank you, Oscar, for for sharing a bit of uh, what his experience has been like, and and uh, there are so many people who, uh, in in Central America, but in other parts of the world as well, are not in a position to uh, meet their family's basic needs, uh, and uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but I think, particularly as uh, as Christians living within the U.S., uh, we have a, a unique opportunity to, um, to, to hear voices like Oscar's and to, to think for ourselves, to judge fairly, to think about, now, what, what might a, uh, a compassionate response and a just response to uh, the, um, the realities of, of immigration and and you know what people are up against, and and what what fair fair policy might might look like, um, and I understand that um, you know, there are other Christians, uh, you know, other who who um, particularly you know lean on uh, Romans thirteen and and uh, say, well, you know, God has established government uh, to create order uh, and to punish wrongdoers, and so if you're afraid of government. Uh, like you know, people who are here who are undocumented uh, experience very, very viscerally a fear of of being arrested and being deported. You know, it's because it's because you broke the law, uh, and what you need to do is follow the law so that you won't be you won't be afraid. Um, um, and there's there's a, a logic to that, uh, but we need to um, view that you know that passage you know in. Uh, hold that intention with with some other passages, such as uh, Isaiah ten one and two. Woe to you who write unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Um, 
in my work with the NAMI project, uh, so often um, I've heard people say that the threat that the employer invoked against them to get them to shut up and go back to work was the threat to call immigration. Um, and um, we need to ask ourselves also, you know, are our laws uh, facilitating, our immigration laws facilitating exploitation? Um, and then we also have to uh, take into consideration the multiple instances in which we're called to welcome those who are strangers and to not oppress them, um, as we see uh, throughout, throughout Scripture. And the very words of Jesus, who says that how we treat those who are most vulnerable among us is how we treat him. So how should we as Christians respond to our broken immigration system? First, we should stand with those who are being unfairly targeted. Stand and make our presence known. And then we should invite everyone to consider that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and we all stand in need of grace. Thank you. So the rest of our time, we're going to talk about, um, you got to stay up here, so don't go around. That's great. Um, is what we can be doing to partner as a church uh, this work um, that, that Jordan is doing. It's easy to talk about these issues. It's another thing to say, like, actually, here in Sioux Falls and here's a church, we have connection and passion to being able to serve a tangible need. Um, and so I wanted to open up uh, for a few minutes uh, just to do a Q&A with Jordan and what he's doing at the, at the Naomi Project. And then he's going to share a couple ways that we can tangibly be the hands and feet and follow the Jesus politic with this very issue. So uh, do we have any, like, questions? I have a couple of questions yes. for you that I'll, I'll get started and you guys can have. Uh, but can you share some examples of some of the exploitation? Just share some of the stories. What what got you into this? What, what were some of the stories of pain that, that led you to do yeah, so one of the first uh, experiences that oh, oh, um, woke me up to what some uh, of our, our brothers and sisters are, are up against was after college, I, I moved in with a family that was uh, doing migrant field labor, and uh, their situation was bad, but the situation across the street with some young men from southern Mexico was, was much worse. Um, they were working 72 hours, sometimes more, a week, and being paid a uh, an amount every month that when I did the uh, the calculations, they were making less than five dollars an hour. Um, um, so that was that was that was part of it, and then uh, being involved in church-based community organizing and uh, worker center organizing, uh, which is a a model that's being used across the country to address uh, exploitation that focuses on equipping those who are the most vulnerable to being exploited with understanding of what their rights are, how to exercise those rights, uh, and bringing those people in, into community with other people who've been through the same thing. Uh, and that's something that Oscar has uh, been very involved in and sharing his story, which uh, in a community where there's a lot of conflicting information, uh, anecdotal evidence, testimonials are very powerful uh, in, in helping someone decide, like, do I... Do I speak up? Do I move on? Um, and uh, so we've been able to 
um, uh, see uh, progress and um, justice to a degree in a number of cases uh, from workers not being paid uh, wages to uh, employers not taking responsibility for workplace injury um, and uh, and then also with in, in um, situations of human trafficking someone can apply for a special visa called a T visa or a trafficking visa uh, which is a way for someone who's currently undocumented to to gain uh, uh, permanent legal status and we've had two of those cases go through so far can you share without naming names like mm -hmm. just an anecdote of how you've become aware of something and you guys have been able to advocate and see change. So especially just yeah. maybe a specific example of how they've been exploited yeah. recently or something locally. Yeah. Uh, so we're really concerned about the guest worker program, H2A and H2B guest workers. Uh, people who are brought here by companies to do work uh, and um, particularly how these visas work is that um, employees are tied to one employer, the, the employer who bought, brought you. And so what we see our employers setting up in places in, in Mexico and Guatemala where there are large numbers of young men with uh, very little formal education and no viable economic opportunities. Uh, so it's not hard to find uh, people uh, who will sign up to come with the company. Uh, and then once they're here, uh, um, the, the wages change, the working conditions, uh, seven, you know, seven days a week, 12-hour days, uh, being paid for you know, only a, a percentage of those hours, uh, being constantly threatened with uh, immigration de uh, uh, enforcement or deportation as ways to get people to shut up and go back to work. Uh, it's, it's really disturbing that, um, that this is happening through a, a program that has has grown significantly in the last the last four years. So that's in South Dakota. Yeah. Yep. How about you guys? Do you have any questions on um, just the the status? Obviously, we're we're in a crisis right now. This is in the news uh, this week. And before we, I mean, we set this date a couple months ago before mm -hmm. everything started going crazy. Um, but are there any questions you have as a Christian, um, Sarah? Do you have a question? <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, what would you say to the person who's saying these these people, right? These people are taking our jobs. Yeah, great question. I'd say talk to the Association of General Contractors, uh, talk to um, farmers, uh, and and how difficult it is for them to find to find workers. Uh, that uh, and that's that's in part why so many. Uh, people are, are accessing programs like H2A and H2B guest worker visas. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I don't ha have a lot of, um, I, I think if, if that's your perception, I think you need to talk to, talk to owners and, and, you know, experts within industries and, and uh, come to your own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Billy? Yeah, yeah, so, uh, you know, there are people who, like our governor who uh, have no sympathy, uh, compassion for people who are, who are immigrants, particularly those who are not, don't, don't have legal status, uh, yet our state clearly needs workers. 
Um, but kind of how I feel is what people are, are getting around that is, is by accessing these H2A and H2B uh, worker programs where they're bringing people legally, but it, it's, it's almost worse, worse you know, being brought by that company than by coming to the US uh, without legal status yourself because uh, that company holds the line between you uh, being in the country legally and being in the country uh, illegally and being deportable and can actively use that threat against you. Now, we're, we are, we're also involved with cases where people who are undocumented are being threatened with, with, um, with uh, immigration enforcement as a means to get them to shut up and go back to work. But it's almost like that those employers have less power over these undocumented workers than the H2A and H2B employers have over their, their guest workers who have legal status uh, because they can decide if that person will continue to be here legally and what, uh, what workers tell us is, you know, they think if, if I get fired by one H2A or H2B employer, no, no other H2A or H2B employer is going to hire me. And they, they, some reference a blacklist that they've been threatened with. And we're not sure, you know, to the degree that that's, that's being used. But, um, but, but the threat is effective. So the alternative is mm -hmm. they stay in their home country where there's a lack of opportunity, poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, lack of ability to get basic resources, mm -hmm. uh, or they come here and they suffer abuse under a governmental program, mm -hmm. or the other choice is go illegally mm -hmm. and have less abuse. So that, that's what I understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I mean, people who are undocumented are, are abused in a lot of ways, yeah. but but how the the HUA and HUB employer programs they they almost facilitate exploitation. Uh, and trafficking more so than you can make the argument at least. Um, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. I I I totally think it's a it's a both and. Which can you repeat is, the question? Oh, sorry, sorry. So um, so should we be focused on um, uh, just and humane immigration policy here, or should we be focused on um, making uh, these countries more livable where? You know, particularly with the, the example of Guatemala getting involved in a fragile stage of a country's development as a democracy makes it very difficult to undo once corruption and injustice have taken hold. Uh, so I think, I think, you know, we need to do both. And that was something that uh, President Biden initially included in his proposal was $4 billion to fight corruption in, in Central America. And some people will say, well, you know, corruption has been happening, you know, it's been... Uh, you know, so bad for so long, what can you possibly do? Like, you're just going to give these governments a lot of, a bunch of money? And the, the truth is, 90% of those funds, um, that's a ballpark figure, um, are going to go to uh, non-government organizations that have a track record of bringing about transformation. And when I was in college, I studied under uh, professors uh, who helped start an organization called the Association for More Just Society. And they were... Uh, deeply involved in, uh, they've been doing some really wonderful work, but particularly in purging the, the police force in Honduras. So one of the big problems in these areas is that you can't trust the police because um, you don't know who they're really working for, who, who their allegiance is to. And they were able to, um, in conjunction with other partners, uh, remove something like 5,000 police officers out of an 8,000 police officer force and really start start from the beginning. And 
And other things that they've been able to achieve with regards to education reform and land reform has been really amazing. You can check them out online, Association for a More Just Society. Uh, I'm really inspired by their work. Great. Any other ones?